Hello, everyone, and welcome. You're listening to EmigCast. I'm Andy Lichtenheld, and today I'll be your host for part two of Cardiac Arrest for Med Students. Now in part one, we got into the details, the nitty-gritty, the actual nuts and bolts of the medical care for patients in cardiac arrest. And in part two, we're going to take a step back from that just a little bit. Now, if you've listened to the truly incredible MCRIT podcast, you're probably already familiar with the phrase, the mind of the resuscitationist. And that phrase is used to describe the concept of how clinicians actually go about thinking about critically ill patients. And what we're going to do today is we're going to borrow that phrase, we're going to tweak it just a little bit, we're going to talk about the mind of the student resuscitationist. We're going to talk about how students learning about resuscitation actually approach that process of learning, how they go about becoming better at this vitally important part of emergency medicine. And one of the best parts of emergency medicine is that everyone's a learner. We're all lifelong learners. And so we're going to talk to two emergency medicine physicians who are at really different points on their path of learning. And as you'll hear, they each have different points of emphasis. I think both of them are really useful and really helpful for students to hear about. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Ina Schneider, and she's an intern in the Oregon Health and Science University Emergency Medicine Residency Program. Now, I started off by posing to Dr. Schneider essentially the same case we talked about in our last episode, and this is basically a case of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. There is a call that comes in from EMS, and you hear that they're en route with this patient who's still in cardiac arrest. They're a few minutes out. They're going to be arriving in your emergency department in just three to five minutes. Dr. Schneider is going to pick it up there. In the situation that you're describing, when you you get the call, you know you have an ambulance coming in, you know, ETA is five minutes, you have limited information, but your general understanding is that this is an arrest. You first want to prepare yourself um, for what's coming in just mentally, and then go in the room and um, help the team make sure that we have everything that we need. So is this person going to need an airway? Possibly. Make sure all our airway equipment is set up. Make sure we have the crash cart to put the pads on them in case they're going to need to be shocked. Make sure all of our monitors are set up. Make sure that we have all of the appropriate staff so that our attending physician is available, our senior resident, we have all our nursing staff, we have pharmacy because they're going to be very important in making sure we have all the medications that we need. I think as a medical student, it can be challenging because you don't always know your role. And you want to be involved and you want to be helpful, but you don't know how. And you also don't want to be in the way. And one of the most important things you can do as a medical student, if you have the time when we're getting set up for the situation, is to assertively, but not uh, being too pushy, introduce yourself to the staff in the room. And hopefully if you've been working in the ED earlier that day or just as part of your rotation, you've kind of gotten to know some people, but make sure that you know some people's names in the room and their roles and make sure that they know who you are. And then make sure that you all have a general understanding of what's going on. And so you could say something like, okay, so I know we have an arrest patient coming in. How can I be helpful? Or say, I want to be involved. I could do chest compressions because that's something that if we truly have an arrest and we're going to be actively doing CPR, we always need more people to do chest compressions. 
I don't know if you've ever done chest compressions on a patient. I never actually had to do it until my intern year. And it was uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. It was I was coming on shift, and it was a patient that was being signed out from the overnight team that was really sick, was already going to have a bed in the ICU, but he needed a paracentesis. He needed a central line, and ultimately was probably going to need to be intubated. And so as we're discussing what needed to be done first um, and what the patient could tolerate being done first as far as positioning, the patient arrested. And so we immediately started CPR, and I was in line to do CPR, and that's kind of how you do it. You say, I want to do CPR, and say, I'm available to do it, and you're basically going to tap out because one person will do it for a cycle, and usually a cycle will be three minutes, and then after the next pulse check, the next person will come in because it's exhausting. It is very tiring, and as Dr. Cornegie discussed, uh, adequate CPR, high-quality CPR is literally the most important thing that's going to affect um, our outcomes. And so being fresh, so to speak, is going to be really important. Do you have any tips or strategies for making being an observer an active role so so you are learning through that process? Yeah, and I think part of it is, like I said before, um, stepping up and offering to help with the chest compression. Another thing um, that's really helpful from a medical student perspective is to try to be able to monitor the pulses or lack thereof the whole time. We as physicians are actually do a really poor job of being able to tell if the patient has a pulse. But what you can do is you can get um, get the Doppler machine and just get the Doppler machine, put it on the where the femoral pulses should be and hold it there the whole time. Another thing you could do is grab an ultrasound machine and then when um, when we take a break to do a rhythm check, you can be the one to see if there's any cardiac activity with the ultrasound, if you feel comfortable doing so. But I think it's really important to also know your limitations. From a medical student perspective, you might not be comfortable with cardiac ultrasound. You might not feel like that's in your skill set. And so someone might ask you to do something that you actually really don't know how to do, and you feel like, I'm uncomfortable doing that. And that's okay. You just have to, to verbalize that. One of the things that happens in almost every code situation is you end up with a lot of people in the room because everyone wants to see what's going on. You know, I mean, people that don't work in medicine and aren't as familiar with the emergency room may have a picture of the emergency room as constant chaos and there's just constantly exciting things going on kind of like on TV. But really, that's not necessarily the case. You have a lot of... Um, non-chaotic situations and then every now and then you'll have just total mayhem from a, a arrest patient or a trauma patient and everybody really wants to see what's going on and so you'll have a ton of people in the room and that makes it hard for the pe person that's running the code to control the room and to keep everything organized and so frequently you'll have one of the nurses or the code leader ask everyone who's not um, vital to the case to leave the room. And so as a medical student, that might include you because you might not have a specific role. And so if you really want to be involved and want to be helpful, that's where, again, it um, behooves you to try to create a role for yourself and identify a role for yourself early on before 
everything gets started before the patient even rolls through the door. I want to go back to asking you a little bit about the communication piece too. Do you find ways, even though you're not leading the code, like do you find ways to work on your own kind of style of communication and team leadership, even even not being in that role yet? How do you think about that? Definitely. I think the number one takeaway from my CLS training with respect to what is good communication is what they call closed-loop communication. And it's kind of a buzzword in the medical field and especially in um, advanced life support training. And it's really important and you can see it fall by the wayside in code situations. Uh, an example of poor communication and not closed-loop communication would be if somebody needs something done and they say, hey, can someone draw up the epinephrine? Can someone look for an IV site on the other side? And when you make requests like that, it kind of goes out into the ether. And that's why I said before it's really important to introduce yourself, know people's names, so when you're making requests of people, you can look at them directly and say, hey, Andy, I need you to look for an IV site on the other side of the patient. And I've definitely uh, been involved in code situations where I see that be the first thing to fail, where people make requests and they kind of go to nobody really and ask questions and they almost come up as rhetorical because they're not being asked of someone specifically. And so as someone who's observing and learning, I notice those things. And so what I try to do sometimes is to facilitate the communication is if I notice that someone asked a question and there's no one to give an answer, I will look for that answer. Like for example, if we're running um, a point of care lab and they're asking, you know, is this lab running? Well, there's no one to answer that question. I'm standing next to the machine and I will look and I'll, I'll see. Or if the question is asked of a particular nurse and I know that that's who they meant to say it to, I will just turn to that person and ask by name and ask them the question and try to relay it. Another thing that I've seen that can go awry as far as communication is when there's, if there's any confusion in who's running the code. And that's huge. That's really the most important thing as a code leader is to have control of the room and to make it clear that you're the one running the code. It seems like such a hard thing, I guess this is maybe part of just the whole becoming a resident deal is learning to step from the observer role or the, you know, the medical student role into saying I'm in charge of this, this code, this patient. How do people make that step? Yeah, that's something that just, I think, comes with time. And I think that one of the biggest shocks to your system when you start residency is really learning to take ownership of the patients and it's I think it's something intangible it's hard to put my finger on it and say exactly uh, where that divide is I think being able to work on those skills in all patient care situations is going to be really valuable for when it is time for you to step up in a situation where it's life or death in a code situation where it can be really scary. And like I said, in our residency, we don't end up running medical codes as interns, but we do end up being in charge of trauma codes as interns. And that can be a scary place to be at the head of the bed when it's the first time you've ever done it. Everybody's looking at you and everyone's listening to you as you're running through your ATLS algorithm and making decisions and it's just a matter of practice. It's kind of like everything else. Once you've done it over and over again, you start to feel more comfortable in that role.
So I think one of the things that can be really helpful from a medical student perspective is to ask your attending, your senior resident, to have a debrief after a code. And that should really be the standard regardless. You shouldn't be the one having to prompt it, but sometimes if the department's really busy, it doesn't happen until later. But you should definitely try to be a part of that because that's important for everybody who's involved to talk about what they thought went well and what could have gone better because everybody's still learning. We're lifelong learners. And especially from a medical student perspective, it can be so chaotic that you might have missed a lot of the justification for what was done and the reasoning behind it and the nuances that are going to be really valuable to your learning. And so if you can ask your team to run through that with you and to understand from the time the patient ran through the door till the end of the code and whatever the outcome was, hopefully a positive outcome, uh, what, what was happening and why it was done, I think that'll just make you better for when you're going to be in that situation later. All right, let's go over some of those excellent learning tips from Dr. Schneider. So she started off with someone coming in with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and started off talking about logistics. And there's that often cited and variably attributed quote that goes something like, novices talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. And I think what we can add to that after hearing from Dr. Carnegie in part one of cardiac arrest and Dr. Schneider here in part two is that as students, we need to learn about strategy, but we need to do it in the context of logistics. And what she talked about was kind of an awareness of all the little pieces that have to be in play so that the strategy can get implemented. And I think as students, lots of times it can get really overwhelming. We can get bogged down in, in focusing on the strategy and, and learning all of those pieces and kind of forget about all the infrastructure that has to be in place in order for that strategy to happen. So she talked about getting the monitor ready to go, making sure an airway card is at the bedside, helping get the team together, kind of an awareness of all of those little pieces. And that is kind of the first go-to thing she talked about. Next, she brought up this kind of challenging situation that I'm sure most of the listeners can relate to of knowing your role as a medical student. And she brought up that classic situation in a cardiac arrest with a room jam-packed full of clinicians where someone asks for everyone who's superfluous to clear the room. And she addressed how we deal with that as students. And the best way is to be proactive, is to make sure that you're not superfluous by getting, getting yourself a role, by involving yourself in the care of that patient. So she suggested that you introduce yourself to the staff in the room and ask how you can be helpful, or even better yet, suggest a role for yourself. She and Dr. Carnegie have each pointed out that chest compressions are the most important thing that are going to be happening in the room for the care of that patient, and that's a really appropriate thing for a student to get involved with. She also suggested Dopplering for pulses, or better yet, using the ultrasound to actually get a look at the heart as two other roles that medical students can take on to really be involved in the care of the patient. And all this comes with a caveat, which is that you're there as a student to learn. You're not there to know how to do everything already. And that it's really important that we be open and honest with the limitations of our knowledge and our skill, both with ourselves and also in communicating that to the rest of the team members in the room. And that's just as important as knowing how to ultrasound the heart, is knowing how to say, actually, I don't know how to ultrasound the heart, and that's not a good job for me. And the next thing we talked about was communication. And what I learned here is how important closed loop communication is, and that even in the role of student, you can really facilitate that, not just in kind of noticing when it breaks down, but also taking it on about being the bridge, about closing that loop when you can, about noticing 
kind of requests and tasks that kind of float out into the ether and taking it on about trying to make sure that those things happen. We also talked about the importance in the communication piece of having a clearly designated team leader. And Dr. Schneider talked a little bit about the process of learning to be that team leader. The key takeaway I got here is that just as with anything, it is practice that is important. And as students, the way we get that practice is to look for little ways to take that leadership role on, to work on those skills. So when it's critical, you've already got that practice under your belt. And if you'll forgive me, diverging into a metaphor here. I'm a, I'm a whitewater kayaker, and we say in whitewater paddling, you don't just start paddling class five, the most difficult whitewater. What you start with is practicing class five moves on class three whitewater. And I think it's the same sort of thing in working on that leadership role. Start in smaller situations, honing those skills. So when you have to step up into that role in a really critical situation, it's not the first time you've done that. Now, the last thing that Dr. Schneider talked about was the importance of debriefing as a learning tool. And that's a great segue to the second perspective we're going to hear from. Dr. Josh Cornegie is an attending physician in the Oregon Health and Science University Department of Emergency Medicine. He joined us for part one of cardiac arrest for med students, and he's got more to say. So let's get his take on debriefing. One other thing that, um, and I actually meant to talk, bring this up just in that last little spiel, but uh, debriefing is huge. And I think as a medical student, I, I would love my medical student to come to me and say, hey, can we debrief a little bit about this? And it doesn't have to be, you know, the touchy-feely, granola, Pacific Northwest debriefing, sitting around singing Kumbaya debrief. I mean, talk about the medicine. Ask the questions about, hey, I thought that we gave bicarb when these people with this acidotic. Why didn't we do this? Or I read this really great study that said that we should be giving steroids, vasopressin, and epi. What do you think about that? Um, I, I bring do some debriefing, do debriefing with the nurses. I think that this should be critical, and I don't think we do it enough. I think that it opens up lines of communication, both for medical improvement and for just mental health improvement after dealing with these really, really difficult cases. So I try to make it a part of every one of these cases I'm a part of, but it's very, very difficult to do um, in a busy department. But I think it's important. I'm curious, too, about just like your own process. It sounds like from just you talking about having these kind of um, experiences or moments that kind of crystallize in your mind, I, it sounds like you do some amount of sort of internal debriefing and, and thinking things through. And I'm curious, you know, I guess one, if that's the case, and two, if there's anything you found helpful in kind of running through things in your head. Is, is there any structured way you approach that? Or um, Yeah, there is. And... I am kind of a granola hippie in the Pacific Northwest, so <laughs> my tactics might not work for other people's tactics, but um, I try to meditate every single day, and I think it helps me dramatically in my own personal life, but it, I think it also helps me at work because these are extremely stressful situations, and I kind of go into a meditative mind when I go into these situations, so I focus on my breathing, I focus on visualization of any type of procedure that I'm going to have to do. And after years of this practice, I feel like it's made my life a lot better, both outside and inside the hospital. I also journal. I also write about these cases, um, not in a uh, identifying patient type of way, but just as a way for me to get out my emotions and my thoughts about the case and how I felt like I performed in the case. Um, and it also helped me kind of rationalize and thought process almost like in an M&M type of way the medicine that I gave, uh, the procedure that I did, why I did it, if there were complications with it. Um, and I think it helps me the next time I'm put in a situation very, very similar to that. Um, 
those are two of the things that I have picking, picked up on my own personal practice that I feel like help with these critical situations. And then the only other piece that I do is I'm a huge advocate for feedback. Um, and I don't want touchy-feely, love, warmy feedback. I want hard feedback. And so I go to my charge nurses and I go to my residents that I run resuscitations with and I'm like, what could I have done better as an attending in that room or as a teacher in that room or as a healthcare provider in that room? And I want the honest thing. And so those are the three pieces that I do almost after every single one of these uh, cases to try to reflect and try to improve my own performance in these situations. What, in your transition from medical student to making this step to uh, through your residency and then becoming an attending, what have you had to learn the hard way along the way? Um, that's a really interesting question. Uh, cardiac arrest has always been something that fascinated me, I think. I, I worked before medical school as an emergency medicine tech, and I remember vividly my first couple of events with cardiac arrest and my first episodes with chest compressions and being called out by a pediatric nurse that I was woefully inaccurate in providing adequate chest compressions for a pediatric patient that we were resuscitating. Um, As an intern, I remember responding to a cardiac arrest in a hospital, like in my mind, one of the safest places to ever have a cardiac arrest, 35-year-old guy who hits the ground and was completely surrounded by nurses and completely surrounded by doctors, and we coded him for 35, 40 minutes, and it was still not successful. And we had to pronounce this 35-year-old gentleman who was reportedly otherwise healthy who collapsed in a hospital, and we had to pronounce him dead. And experiences as a resident of having three shifts in a row where you had three cardiac arrest cases back-to-back, none of which were successful and having to have those difficult conversations with, uh, with, uh, family members. And I think the biggest thing that I take away from these cases is that the medicine does become regimented and algorithmic. Um, the medicine is fascinating medicine and some of it works and some of it doesn't work, Uh, but we try our best with the medicine. But the things that I find still very, very challenging to this day are communicating with the room and getting everybody on the same page. Making sure that when I've decided in my mind that this resuscitation is futile, and there's a lot of a host of things that I use to try to make that decision, turning my attention then to the rest of the room because I really do feel like the rest of the room becomes my patient at that point in time. Turning my attention to the family if they're there and getting them into the room and making sure that they've been able to see everything that we've done for their loved one. Um, I really turn my attention to those people so that my colleagues, my nursing staff, my students I'm working with can go home at the end of the night and and get sleep and feel like they did something and they did something worthy and they didn't not do something. Um, And still kind of trying to keep my wits about me and focusing on those other people that are around taking care of those patients is still the piece that's the hardest for me uh, because these are very, very difficult cases Um, and it's very difficult uh, to have a discussion with a patient's loved one and, and, and let them know that we tried everything we could but it was not successful or have a discussion with one of our new nursing staffs that just came out of nursing school and um, really is struggling with feeling, did they do the right thing? Should they have verbalized something else? Should they have spoken up? 
Um, I think that those are the tough things for me. They're the kind of the intangible communication pieces that I still take with me uh, after after many many resuscitations. When you talk about those the intangibles that have kind of as time has gone on been the thing that you focus on or find the most challenging, like talking to patients, talking to patients' families, debriefing the room, those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of things that seems like as a student can be really hard to get practice with. Are there ways you think that students can get practice with those kinds of communication skills? Absolutely. Um, Observation is key. Um, So when you have the opportunity, either in the emergency department or on the ICU rotations, those are the two that it typically happens. Sometimes in uh, primary care rotations, where providers are providing bad news, any of those high-stress situations you need to be a part of, even if it's just standing in the corner um, and visualizing, watching, hearing, seeing, smelling what is going on in that room. Because that's what you're going to learn. That's how you're going to learn the good things and the bad things. Because these are very difficult, and some people are very good at it, and some people are not so good at it. Watching how a professionally trained, like, ED social worker provide this type of information has been very hugely beneficial for me. So as a student, I would say be a part of that conversation. Be in the room um, for at least a couple so that you can try to figure out things, phrases that you really, really like to say. I was a medical student and actually did get to be a part of quite a bit of these discussions when I was on the ICU, um, I this is a an area of medicine that I really like, though as well. I'm really passionate about, and I could easily see myself after emergency medicine, kind of retiring into palliative care and discussing end of life stuff because I think that that's a whole different podcast we could do, but a fascinating realm that I would love to be a part of. But um, I think getting to see what works and what doesn't work is hugely beneficial. That you've given, you're actually given time to do that right now as a medical student. And so instead of like trying to be like, oh, I'm just going to be standing there, my feet are going to get sore, and I could be watching this other procedure, which would be much more interesting and exciting, which is true uh, for the most part, I would say take huge advantage of those opportunities because you're going to take something that's going to be much more lifelong, much more longitudinal with you from that than getting to watch another chest tube get placed. You're going to get plenty of those opportunities. And then practice. Um, this is something that I'm developing right now for our residents. Is like if you have a simulation program at your institution or at your school, I think this is a great opportunity for simulation using a standardized patient, uh, being able to work out, oh my God, I can't believe I said that and that sounded horrible. I'm never going to say that again. But really being able to work because practice is makes these conversations so much easier. Um, it helps you figure out what really does sound okay and how your voice sounds and how you can relate to these people in a way that's much more meaningful than just walking in very robotic and saying, I'm sorry, but your loved one didn't make it. There are some very structured approaches that people will learn as they go along. And again, I, I think that's a little bit outside the scope of what we can record today. But um, I think that observing and then practicing as a medical student are two things that you can definitely, definitely do that will help this when you get to that residency or provider stage. What would you say to medical students that you talk about the unsuccessful resuscitation, which is probably the predominance of cases that students are going to be involved with? How do you uh, keep your interest and your um, 
passion and your commitment to doing the best you can for patients in the face of experiences that can be disheartening or frustrating or kind of challenge what you thought you were doing in the first place? Um, yeah, cynicism is a defense mechanism that we all struggle with and we work through, particularly working 36 hours out of a 48-hour time period. I think it's just something that we do and we'll always struggle with and the the best of us will be cynics at times. Um, everybody who looked at the field of cardiac arrest um, was a little bit negative years back until we've started making some improvements. And I think like anything else in in medicine, I think that we don't really have it all figured out by any means. And I think we get humbled on a daily basis and things that used to be standard of care are completely malpractice now and things that used to be malpractice are completely standard of care. And so I think having that mindset that this field that we chose to go into is ever-evolving and is ever-changing, and we are blessed with the opportunity to get to contribute to it, is really what wakes me up every day and get, makes me excited to come to the department and come to the university and work with students and residents. Um, I think if you can't find something in your career that gives you that excitement, then you should find another career because this is a really, really hard career. Um, but there's so many ways to contribute. It doesn't have to be cardiac arrest. It could be pulmonary embolism. It could be sepsis and infection. Um, get excited about teaching. Uh, whatever that is that makes you excited to wake up every morning and contribute every day a little bit to, uh, to that piece. Find one of those nursing students or nursing staff that's fresh out of nursing school and, and print off an ultrasound article that... that and, and, and explain to them why you did this ultrasound, why you used ultrasound during this cardiac arrest and how it can be beneficial. Um, and just don't be, um, uh, don't be selfish with that knowledge that you have. Be willing to share that with other people and, and make them excited about their job. Uh, I, think that, I think that it's easy for students and it's easy for residents and it's easy for attendings to become very cynical. But I, th- I think that we're charged with a much bigger, um, a, a much bigger obligation to improve our patient care and and that's the way that we're going to do it is getting excited about teaching our patients and teaching our nurses and teaching the other folks that are coming behind us and that's what kind of keeps me waking up every day doing this job. So those are I think some really great and inspiring insights into the mind of the student resuscitationist from Dr. Cornegie and I think the big takeaway for me there that I learned is that really That mindset, the mind of the student resuscitationist, isn't about a particular level of training or area of expertise. Dr. Cornegie is clearly an expert in resuscitation, and I think that his approach to learning and improving and becoming better is something that applies to everyone who sees themselves as a student. And rather than recap that, I want to leave it with his message at the end to all of us, which I think is that we can make the decision to get inspired and to get excited about the medicine, and to not be selfish with it, to share it with the people around us, and to bring everyone up to that level, to get everyone on the same page of learning and making things better than they are right now. So that's going to do it for this month of eMigCast. Thanks again for tuning in. We've got more great stuff coming up, so please stay tuned. We're going to talk about toxicology. We're going to talk about myths in emergency medicine. We're going to talk about the art of the physical exam. So much good stuff coming down the pipe. So stay tuned. Let us know in the comment section if you have thoughts, feedback, ideas about other episodes. We want to hear all of it. And we want to see you next month. We'll talk to you then.